You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Well, what with extreme social distancing, it's something to do. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Cass Morris. I'm Marsha Ryan Moreska. And this is episode 22, First We Eat. Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode. I'm sorry, I already am in the weird zone. It's a weird time, friends. There is only a weird time. zone. There are no other zones anymore. Only weird zone. <laughs> there is only the weird time. Welcome to our episode on food, which is in the midst of everyone having so much food in their house right now. Because yes, and nothing, <laughs> nothing to do but eat. And nothing to do with eat. Um, we record this ahead of time, so maybe you in the future listening to it are thinking we're lunatics. But right now, we're all sequestered <laughs> in the house, and because it is the plague times, and so here we are, living through the plague. Welcome. And, and we're... <laughs> And we're world building and stress baking, and that is what we are doing. And um, we are very excited this week. Alex could not be with us this week, but we have the lovely Cass Morris back with us yet again mm-hmm. um, to talk world building, talk food. Um, how are you, Cass? What's what's shaken? I <laughs> I told someone the other day. I feel <laughs> like the question "How are you?" should come with an asterisk these days. <laughs> Like, how are you, aside from all of this nonsense? And aside from all of this nonsense, I'm okay. I, things are rolling along. And as a reminder to our dear listeners, Cass Morris is the author of The Avon Cycle. Um, and can you give us just a quick primer to your wonderful work, Cass? I certainly can. Uh, book one is From Unseen Fire, and book two, Give Way Tonight, should hopefully be out later this year if the print industry doesn't collapse in the meantime. society doesn't collapse. Um, (laughs) As things currently stand, it'll be out later this year. And it is a, uh, they are Roman flavored fantasy novels. So it's an alternate history. It's, it's the map of Europe and the Mediterranean that you're familiar with, but I've changed history a little bit by giving the Romans magic to see what they would do with it. And it's wonderful and terrible things. (laughs) Sometimes responsible, sometimes irresponsible things you know, that they do with it, but wonderful and them. fun to read. <laughs> Isn't that the nature of magic and Romans? It is. <laughs> it's, it's it definitely is. the nature of Romans. They cannot help themselves. Well, we are going to talk food today, and I feel like this is always a fun topic to talk about with fantasy because food and fantasy has such... A reputation, like every fantasy book that people are familiar with typically has the like, and then they describe the giant feast scene (laughs) and all the food that fantasy writers include in their books. Um, But it makes sense, I feel like, because how better to get to know a culture and a world than what they eat and their food? Do you guys have any in your books, like foods that are really revealing about the world or about the culture? Well, I mean, I have lots of food. In my in my books, I did I did a whole promo thing last year when uh, Parliament of Bodies came out, where I made a dish from each of the previous books and did like a whole 
Instagram photo thing with with that. And that was a fun thing to, though that it was one of those projects where it's like I started it and then about halfway through I'm like this this is a lot and I wish I hadn't started <laughs> this because this is this is a lot to do. But I mean but it was a fun thing to do still cuz I love a I mean I've been, you know, I don't like to say I've been a chef because I feel like chef is a title like doctor that like, you know, but I've been, you know, a restaurant cook and I've done a lot of amateur, amateur chefery sort of things. So I, you know, I am very familiar with, with food and food as a world building tool. So I'm a big fan of doing all sorts of cookery things. Thus, there's tons of food within the books and I have a lot of fun with that. I mostly include food when I have to. Because it's it's not something that I personally spend that much time thinking about. I would eat about the same four meals every day, like every week, if left to my own devices. <laughs> um, but it is something that can add so much color to your world building. And fortunately, I don't have to do that much hard work because I just get to steal from the Romans. And the Romans liked to write about what they ate. So there's there's easy work pre-done for me there. But it does. It can show a lot about class. It can show a lot about occasion. And it can show a lot about um, how people eat when they're like on the move versus sitting down versus having a banquet and all of those fun things. It's a good world building tool, I think, because it is something all of us have to do every day. <laughs> you know, it's not like it's not yes. like having a religious ceremony or going to a play or scaling a mountain. It's something that everyone has to do every single day in some fashion. You know, one of the things I think is kind of fun um, with food, one thing that I did, especially in the later two books um, in the Unraveled Kingdom trilogy is um, to show differences in region that people eat differently depending on where they live and what's available and what's common. So there's one region in book three that the main character is visiting and it's an island and they have um, a big fishing industry and they eat a lot of fish. And at one point the main character asks through translation um, to her server, do you eat any meat aside from fish? And she says, oh, yes, we also eat tuna and shark. And so she says to her translator, like, I think you mistranslated that. She's like, no, I, I translated that correctly. Um, so just <laughs> kind of playing with how people eat um, and understand their food and even understand words like meat um, being different, depending on what's available and, and what you have commonly. So what are um, yeah. some ways that food can kind of like um, help us understand the cult or the, the world the um way back when we talked about biomes in like episode three like how can that be reflected in the foods that we choose for our our people well one of the key things you can do is by you know just by using your biome by using whatever the climate is in the section of the world that you're working on you automatically define certain things about how they're eating and what they're eating and then, you know, like you said, you had the island nation where it's, they have lots of different types of fish that are common in the diet to the point where the word fish translates to a more specific kind of fish and tuna and shark. Oh, that's something else. Just because that's what they're eating so much of it that that defines so much about who, what their culture is. It's a quick and easy way to show something about a culture just by what they're eating. Like if you have somebody eating steak or eating, a, eating beef of any form, you've already said so much about 
about the culture itself and what they're what they do on a day to day basis, how they you know, what sort of industries are already in place, what sort of climate is already in place as the norm. All of that is just is at least subconsciously informed to your reader just by telling them that they're eating beef or eating lamb or eating or eating fish, you know, just because of those little details. Yeah. When I, I started thinking about this, I found myself thinking about playing the game civilization because mm. one of the things that you do in that is, is, you know, you're acquiring resources and they're on certain tiles and usually the, the map, connects certain certain biomes certain areas to the certain kinds of resources so you know if you're in a more flat wet warm climate you're going to get rice if you're in some place a little drier you're going to get wheat and it does that but at least in some versions of the game there's um, a mod you can go into if you go into the settings and you can tell it to just like randomize what the resources are (laughs) and so you can suddenly get you know just oranges growing at the top of your Arctic mountains. And it's, it can be completely bonkers. And it's just sort of a, <laughs> a fun thing. Like, it makes no sense whatsoever. But I guess this is the world I gave myself to deal with. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's kind of fun, too, that so much of, like, culture and, and how we, like, deal with the environment, um, like, has to do with how we produce food. So you have, like, more arid or dry or less vegetative environments and that's where we get a lot of herding so you have people who are you know relying more heavily on on herd animals because they can't grow a ton of food which is kind of counterintuitive because we think about in the u.s like we grow a ton of food to feed to our animals but historically that that's not always what was done you have grazing animals that you move from pasture to pasture because you can't grow you know good food in, in vegetable gardens or, or grain fields, um, just based on the climate. So it's kind of fun how we you know can think about dealing with, you know, you got dealt the less great hand of cards for your biome. Well, how do these people deal with it? What do they do? How do they still feed themselves? And it can be not just the climate, but also literally how much space do you have to do things? Um, like, yeah, that the terrace farming that they do in, in Japan and I think in Korea and, and other places where they don't have lots of flat space to farm on, but they have found a way to make that terrain work for them. Or you think about when like grazing space gets taken away, like with the enclosure acts in Britain and how, how space is negotiated, how much physical space you have, some types of food making, whether it's, you know, agriculture or herding or what have you take up more space than others. Well, then I think about the impact of trade too, that as, people spread out and bump into each other, suddenly goods become, you know, major trade goods and the diet changes hugely because something that you didn't have before enters um, either just trade or you start growing it because we brought it back from wherever. Like the whole argument about potatoes, like fantasy potatoes, like can you have potatoes in your medieval world because potatoes came from wherever or tomatoes in Italian um, culture that tomatoes are a new world thing that then took off, right? Am I remembering that correctly? You're correct. You are, You're correct yeah. about that, which is a thing I think about a lot of like, are you going to delve in your world building of what the the different centers of origins in your world are going to be, which do not have to match exactly. Like you can say, no, potatoes came from this part of the world and just be done with that and leave it at that. But I think right. you can have a lot of fun with playing with what the different centers of origin of the different food types in your world 
are and what came from where and then what different options that gives you. Like you can, this is a thing I think about way too much sometimes because it's, you know, it is certainly not helpful, (laughs) but like I have a whole bit in my book in, in Thorn of Denton Hill where because I just wanted potatoes, I'm like, okay, then I'm going to explain where potatoes come from and just have like two guys in the, in the background of a scene arguing about like, no, the war over in those islands was really about potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it can be like, I think it's one of those, those choice things you have to do because I know in, um, I forget which of the a Song of Ice and Fire Game of Thrones books it was, but at some point they mention pumpkins in the reach in the big Southern region that is sort of their breadbasket. And there's absolutely no reason why pumpkins shouldn't grow in Westeros, that it's a fantasy land. Anything can grow there that you want to. But because it is so coded as fantasy medieval England in so many ways, it just struck my brain weird. It was was a little hitch that I snagged on. I was like, pumpkins? They can't... Well, sure they can. I guess they can have pumpkins. But it just... It was a moment of cognitive (laughs) dissonance because everything else was so pre-pumpkin England. Be my new term for <laughs> England before 1600. Pre pumpkin England. <laughs> you have pre and post, and nothing would ever be the same after the pumpkin. <laughs> Gourds of all kinds, really. Did your world have something resembling the Columbian Exchange? And if mm-hmm. so, what came from where and what went where and what happened with all that? And you can, like, these, these are fun things you can think about in terms of where the food comes from in the first place and how that affects cuisine. Like things can be from other parts of the world and then get so wholly adopted by one culture. Like tomatoes are now so very associated with Italian cuisine when tomatoes didn't show up in Italy until the 16th century. And then you also have the element of what becomes common because it can be, because it grows here, might as well grow it. And then what still remains like a luxury item. Right. So a lot of the spices that you have, you know, kind of moving through trade from, from the Renaissance and even earlier in some cases, but onward, I mean, these are luxury items often that cost a lot of money that you are kind of flaunting, you know, hey, I've got a nutmeg <laughs> and I carry a little nutmeg grater in my pocket so I can whip it out <laughs> and I can put nutmeg on anything that I eat because I am a highfalutin person who can afford nutmeg. And I'm going to show you all about it. That's still <laughs> true. I mean, have you ever had to buy saffron for a recipe? It's still yes. like, oh yeah, it's insane <laughs> amount of money for these tiny. Oh little my god! So and... my my husband was in Afghanistan. He's he was deployed last year, and he he just mentioned to me, he was like, "Hey, would would you have wanted saffron? Because I could get it like really cheap." And I was oh. like, "You bastard!" Smuggled <laughs> <laughs> me back a saffron. <laughs> Why? So yeah, so but yeah, I mean, there's still things, <laughs> and even too, just regionally, how things can be different. That you know, there are some things that are expensive depending on where you live. That it is cheap food somewhere else. Um, you know, like certain kinds of seafood. If you try to get it here in the Midwest, it's expensive because it has to get flown in. Whereas if you're on a coast, it's like you know, maybe it's not cheap, cheap, but it's it's not the luxury item that that for us it can kind of be like fresh seafood is kind of a thing here because we can get freshwater fish, but but you can't get ocean-caught fish fresh without it getting flown in. And another thing to think about is how over time what's, you know, 
cheap food can become luxury and what was luxury can become cheap food. I mean, lobster used to be considered the absolute <laughs> bottom of the barrel. Like, oh, if you're really desperate, you can eat lobster. That's that's the thing that the people who basically live on the docks and just drag it out from from underneath the docks. That's what they eat because <laughs> they can't find anything else. And I think it had something to do with on like cross country trains in the U.S. They would it like became marketed as like, well, we have lobster live in tanks. <laughs> and so it became a luxury thing because because the, the train people made it into a luxury thing. That's some good ass marketing. That's <laughs> Yeah, and in 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 my book, um my editor actually recommended that I change this and she she was absolutely right, but in in 18th century like England and elsewhere, um oysters really weren't that expensive or luxury of an item and people would would sell them on the streets. You'd have oyster shuckers who would just be selling them from carts or stands on the street. And I had this in, in my book and my editor was kind of like, you know, most people that's so coded today as that is a high end item. That's not street food. That's not something that people associate as just being like, go buy a, you know, hot dog on a stick level of, of food. And, and, you know, she was right. Cause it has that connotation for us of fancy seafood, not like street garbage that someone's like throwing at you for a few pennies. <laughs> But that's what it was again until until relatively recently because right. because like in New Orleans you could just go down to the the shore and scoop up a bunch of oysters and there that's <laughs> like that's how you got them and I did and I did a little bit of that in which in Holver Alley Crew that it wasn't oysters but it was freshwater mussels that's like lots of times kids just go down to the river and get a bunch and then that's how they eat because. Because that's what you have to do sometimes is just go and get some freshwater mussels and make yourself a soup. And it's not fancy at all, but probably mussels has less of a fancy connotation than, than oysters, yeah, though. Yeah, than oysters. <laughs> Even though they're pretty much <laughs> the same thing. <laughs> so question kind of pivoting us away from um, the food itself, but what about like how and when people eat like what significance can mealtime or not having mealtime have in fantasy world building? Specific mealtimes, I feel, suggest stability. Yeah. If you're doing a thing where like your characters like get up and have breakfast and say, I should have breakfast and then go about their day, <laughs> you're already signaling that there's a routine. The idea of like wake up and there will be something to eat and then go about your day is a normal thing for them. Whereas if you, if there's more of a sense of to like eat whatever you can, whenever you can, that shows, that shows more of a sense of instability and scarcity. If those are the things you want to try and convey within your world. I feel like the Ur example of that is probably um, Pippin in Lord of the Rings <laughs> and his expectation of, <laughs> All the Hobbit meals, which like that, that one segment alone tells you most of what you need to know about Hobbit culture, that they love their food, they have expectations of food, and their world is stable enough that they can have that expectation of that much food every day. Right. And they're very ordered people that yes. you like have this, this schedule, you have an, an under... A, a like you know developed enough understanding of time and and chunking your day up into time that you have 11 z's and that's a thing because we can measure it 
one thing I was thinking of too is it kind of can indicate having a domestic space versus a non-domestic space. Because if you get up in the morning and you're going to have breakfast and then you leave, like that kind of has that establishment of you eat at home and then you go somewhere else and do work and maybe you bring a lunch or maybe you have to go home to eat or maybe someone provides you food elsewhere. But like that that division of domestic space and someplace else, I think, can be kind of signaled by where you eat. Where are you eating and who are you eating with? And that also is a big thing you can do in the world building not of where the food comes from, not in the sense of like who's growing it or who's raising the, the, the animals, or whatever, but who is actually making the food and where you go to get it. Like, are, do you have your own kitchen where you're making a few things or is there, are there, are there food carts on the street? Are there, is eating in some sort of communal kitchen, the common thing to do in the neighborhood or something like that. Like a lot of neighborhoods, some places would just have like an oven that was everybody's oven. And so you went and you baked your bread in there, but like you didn't have your own in your own house or, or, something like that. And just the expectation of where you're going to go to eat and what you can get from there is is another big world-building tool. Cass, I, I remember reading at one point that um, in Roman cities, not everyone had their own kitchens and that there were actually, I don't want to say fast food vendors, but kind of like fast food vendors. You should absolutely say fast food vendors. Um, it was called, fast, a, okay. <laughs> yes, it was called a thermopylium. Um, and it, it was takeaway. It was absolutely Roman takeaway because you're right. Most people did not have kitchens in, in their home because most people were living in uh, tiny apartments. And I'm using the word apartment generously. They were cubicles for a lot of them. You slept there and most of Roman life was lived out in the streets in one fashion or another. And so there were lots of restaurants that they would have, like, you'd be able to get a, a cup of wine because, you know, you need that to sustain you throughout the day. <laughs> and sometimes it would be like... I'm almost thinking like, you know, when you go to a Renaissance fair and you get the roasted nuts in the little paper thing, they didn't have like the paper wrapping <laughs> like that, but it was food like that. It'd be like chickpeas or it would be nuts or something that you could take, you know, in your bowl or in something away. Or it might be something closer to what we would think of as like a Cornish pasty, the sort of pastry like thing with with meat and veg in it. And yeah, it was takeaway. And that was how a lot of Romans ate most of the time, because they live their lives not in their domestic spaces. And like that really says a lot too, but then like who are you eating who are you eating with? Are you like going with your buddies? Are you going by yourself? Like you can play a lot with like who are you actually having a mealtime with? Like we often think of meals as like, you know, this image of the nuclear family sits down together and has a meal, but that's a really narrow slice of how people share food together. You can have whole big groups of people sharing food together or individuals just grabbing something on their own, um, just kind of like for a sustenance thing. Yeah. And like, do you have your favorite spot that you always go to? Or do you try to try something new every day? And that can convey a lot of character information as well. Yeah. But also like, what are the, the rules about who you eat with and how you eat and things like that? Because that, that can say a lot. Like when, I think when we we're on our sex episode, we talked about there's the one culture in Oceania where because their local cuisine acts as a natural birth control. So therefore like sex is, sex is a very, <laughs> sex is a very, you know, common thing to do with just anyone and everyone all the time. 
but eating a meal with somebody that's very intimate (laughs) and so (laughs) like that's not a thing you do unless it's serious And you can play with that sort of thing. I say, I mean, there are social rules to meals and to eating together, kind of regardless of of something as extreme as that. But I mean, almost any culture you're going to have certain rules about who you eat with, who it's appropriate to eat with, and and what kind of expectations go along with who you're eating with. Like a family dinner looks different than grabbing a bite with your friends, or does it? And you can flip that where the grabbing a bite with your friends has a different, you know. Like that might be the more formal thing than the family sit down dinner. And food and meals can be such such a thing of, of social negotiation too. Like, are you preparing this meal to show off to somebody that you've invited over for dinner? Are you having this meal to communicate that you are a community, that you are feasting together? Those sorts of things as well. Another Roman thing is that if you were sort of a poor but social climbing person, you spent a lot of your time trying to get invited to dinner so that you didn't have to find your own food. (laughs) But the proper protocol was to bring your own napkin. That was the etiquette. And so, like, I feel like etiquette is a thing that isn't directly food-related, but can be so much involved with meals and with that social negotiation. If you're a guest at somebody's place for dinner, there, depending on the culture, there can be different rules of what is the proper etiquette. Like... Depending on where you are in the world, if you're put, if a plate of food is put in front of you, it can be a mortal insult to not completely clear your plate, or it can be a mortal insult to completely clear your plate, depending on where you are. <laughs> <laughs> or, or it can be just plain dangerous because there are some places where if you clean your plate, they will put more on it. Right. So <laughs> you're in trouble if you keep eating. You know, it's interesting too, because we, we create a whole etiquette around eating. And like, I think of, you know, like, like the Downton Abbey formal dinner where you've got multiple courses and each mm-hmm. course has a certain expectation with it. And, you know, which fork you're supposed to use actually becomes a, a thing that you're, you know, measuring each other by. And failure to, to live up to that means that you have not had the proper education. And that, again, will say so much about <laughs> about the culture. So one thing that I find really interesting, we we're talking about food preparation earlier and like who prepares food, but um, the extent to which that can be gendered. Oh, yeah. And how kind of in in our culture, we, we frequently think about food preparation as being a feminine task. Though we had this ironic thing then that in our culture, even though most food prep is there's an expectation of, you know, traditionally, quote unquote, it's done by women, but your high ranking chefs tend to all be men. And so you kind of have this weird, that weird thing happening. But like, how can you play with food preparation and, and who is and who is preparing food and why or depending on the kind of story you're writing or the world you're creating the food prep in and of itself can have its own culture i don't know if the two of you have ever worked in like high pressure kitchens at all but it's got this own weird culture of its own of like (laughs) like shouty nasty like we're making we're making art but at this in what we're putting on the plate but at the same time we could all murder each other at any moment <laughs> oh god and there are knives everywhere and there it's are knives it is it's <laughs> fascinating but and i'm glad i don't do it anymore <laughs> but yeah i think both of those things speak to the idea of there being 
a hierarchy in food preparation. You know, whether it is the the male female split or within a kitchen, you know, the chef and the sous chef and the the under everyone. That that can be a, that can be itself another form of power negotiation, not just the eating of the meal but the preparation of it as well. Upstairs downstairs type thing sometimes. One thing I was poking into recently for like non-book related things but for like nerd being a dork related things um that historically a lot of times in military settings in american and british military settings food was prepared um in a mess you would have like six to eight guys um in what was called a mess together and they were expected to get their rations and pool them and and make food but what's really kind of funny is and this is men were supposed to do this um when you look at the at the artwork that people created of military camps, like sketches and things, there are women who followed the army, wives of soldiers. And it's really kind of mm. funny because in a lot of these images, it's women who are cooking. So the regulations all say men are supposed to be cooking their rations together. And then what you kind of have in artwork is that looks like frequently, you know, women are stepping in and, and doing this. And it's kind of this question of like, well, was this because at home this was what you did? Was this a necessity thing? The men are too busy doing other stuff, so the women are getting assigned to do this. And it's, it is, it's a weird question of, of negotiation between regulation and power and who does what and whose roles are which and whether or not um, a different setting, in this case a military setting, changes that or not. And that's not to say that men didn't still cook their own meals because often they did in that setting, but... It's just kind of a funny, like, how do you, how do you throw different elements together, reshake them, and like, what comes out on top in terms of who does what? And then also, you have levels of class or caste brought into that as well. Like, is is all the food prep done by people of a certain class? I mean, you brought up Downton Abbey, where it's like there's all the servants who are in the kitchen just doing tons and tons of work to like get everything out. And then, and which is like all but ignored by the people who are actually eating it. And then <laughs> I don't know if you've seen, if you've yet seen the Downton Abbey movie, but like the whole thing, the whole plot, which is paper thin, it's, it's delightful, you know, especially <laughs> now, if you need something to watch that has no consequences whatsoever, that's a great thing to watch. <laughs> but um, so the whole premise is that the king is going to come and just stay at Downton Abbey one night. And but like then his own people come to like, no, we're going to be making the meal for tonight because so like you, the <laughs> staff here at Downton Abbey, like you just flit off because you are not needed. So they do. They basically pull a heist to distract and get rid of this, the king's <laughs> staff so then they can be the ones to actually cook the meal for the king. Oh my god, this sounds like a delight. It is a delight. <laughs> I, I highly recommend, especially now, Gosh. if you need something just to, to be a delight tonight <laughs> during this time. What that makes me think of, though, like, in, and we're talking about, you know, world building and, and how to work this into your world. Are there pieces of the food preparation process that are in your world more honorable or more venerated than others you know like is the these the butchering of the meat the most important part and the person who does that is super important or is it the roasting of the meat or is it the dressing of the meat like that could be a fun thing to play with like what phase along the way is seen as the most prestigious part of food preparation sort of like how like 
the turkey is considered the most important part of Thanksgiving dinner, although my mother swears up and down, it's not by any means the hardest part of oh, no, it's cooking not. Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> no, it's not. It is not. <laughs> but it's like the centerpiece and like carving the turkey is like the big thing. And, and who carves the turkey? Like, you put it in an oven for a while. And, yes. and you, Yeah. <laughs> we had a contest one time when my family had like, we had like 30 people over for Thanksgiving from like a bunch of different families and our friends. And we had four turkeys. And we had a turkey carving contest and it was just fun. That was just a weird thing. But like, <laughs> why? Why is that a thing in our culture that carving the turkey is an important <laughs> note in your in your character? <laughs> well, and it, it's a really good point, too. Just the idea of like prestige versus um, maybe like pragmatism, too, um, because I'm like I'm hmm. dredging way back here to my college days. But I remember um, that in a lot of uh, kind of hunter gatherer societies like there's this mentality of, of like the men going out and hunting and the meat being a major part of the diet but actually it's the women going out and gathering all the other food that makes up the vast majority of the diet in most of these cultures so you might have like an image of like oh it's it's you know this prestigious go bring down a deer and that's like the you know centerpiece of of the diet but in reality it's the quieter more mundane kind of boring but absolutely vital nuts and berries and tubers and and edible leaves and all that stuff that people are actually eating like 95% of the time if i can pivot from that to another aspect of in of using food in your world building is so many foods especially if you're going deep into like a hunter gatherer type society require a lot of work to make them actually edible. Like, you know, with corn, you have to do the whole nixtamalization process where it's like you soak it in lye for like a week and then soak it in something else because the lye would kill you <laughs> to like suck out the lye. But like all of these things that like, you really have to wonder, like, what is the trial and error that had them figure out <laughs> how to do these things to make it edible? But that's the case with so many things. So I, I, I often think about how many things that we eat on a regular basis, like, had to have been a couple teenagers daring each other. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> like. You know, because we had the explanation of where it came from, like, oh, well, cheese came from putting milk in skins. And then, you know, like the rennet naturally turned into cheese. Yes. But who ate that? Who was like, yes, I'll take a piece of milk. A piece of milk sounds wonderful. No, it was called teenagers being like, oh, but you won't eat that. Or, or beer, that that was like grains that were kept in jars and then moisture got into them, fermented and created this like alcoholic beverage great explanation who was like yes i'll drink the frothy chunky liquid that sounds like a great idea no that's a terrible idea don't do that you'll die like or like <laughs> milk who was it was like you see what that calf is doing over there we should do that <laughs> we should do the same thing to that cow that the calf is doing i think that but will like, work out well for us <laughs> Like and you know these... it didn't at first. You but you, you know people got like, kicked in the face. Yes. Like you know this happened. <laughs> but they're like we've been drinking milk at least in in some cultures. You know it's more prevalent in in some parts of the world than others. But we've been drinking milk for thousands of years, and yet only within the last 
I forget exactly when Louis Pasteur was, but within the last couple hundred years, did we figure out how to make it less dangerous yeah. <laughs> a thing to do? Right. Through the technological process. Well, and then process. food preservation like, becomes a giant thing, too. But, like, I want to improve on milk. That's what I'm going to make my <laughs> life's work. Like, he also... He also cured <laughs> rabies. I'm just saying, you know, the man did multiple things. Um, but I remember reading about this expedition in Australia where the like the four stupid British guys basically like lost the food that they had. And were like stuck in the middle of somewhere and they started eating the thing like the plants that they saw the natives eating, but like kept chasing the natives away when the natives were like coming up to them and being like, no, don't do that. And they're like, and they shot at them and chased them away. But as they were doing this, they just got weaker and weaker and sicker and sicker. And then all of them died, but one. And then once he was like too weak to fend off the natives, they saved him. But it turns out that like the plants that they were eating, if you don't do the right process to them first, they have a chemical that basically stops your body from absorbing nutrients. <laughs> <laughs> And the natives knew this. Well, they didn't know like that God. aspect of it, but they knew this is what you have to do first to make this edible because they'd been surviving on that for, you know, generations upon generations. And that was just common knowledge to them. But, you know, the stupid British explorers had no idea about this and were just <laughs> eating this stuff and feeling full, but starving to death at the same time. That seems so apt. It's like somehow. the worst lumbus bread ever. <laughs> <laughs> but like it, Cass, you know, you mentioning Louis Pasteur kind of reminds me of too, like food preservation is a big thing because in a lot of areas of the mm -hmm. world, like we don't have consistent growing seasons. So you get a bunch of food at once and then you're going to go a long time without having food. So the idea of like coming up with how do you preserve food, like canning is actually relatively new. We didn't have canning until like a about 150 years ago and before that we had pickling and we had preserving but you couldn't put it like in an airtight botulism free um can <laughs> so it's it's kind of interesting when you go back and and try to read like recipe books of how people were trying to preserve food 200 250 years ago and like one that i was i just because I got into pickling recently, because I was like, pickling, this sounds fun. But it was really common to pickle things, put them in crock jars, and then at least they last significantly longer than just fresh. They won't last forever without the canning process. Um, but pickled eggs were a big thing in the 18th century, because if you had your hens lay a whole bunch at once and you couldn't eat all those fresh eggs, then you could you could hard boil the eggs and then pickle them, and then you'd at least, they'd last a little bit longer so I'd always wondered, like, why why pickled eggs? Why? Well, it's more <laughs> pragmatism than anything else, apparently. Why loot fisk? Why? <laughs> <laughs> Who thought this was a good idea? But that does become a good world-building question. Like, if you're going to have dried and salted meat, you have to have access to salt and you have to have a place to dry things. You can't have an ice box if you don't have access to ice and... Who knows, if you have a magical world, you could magically preserve your food and do something like that to it, which would be helpful. Yes. And I think that that's, you know, I, I don't know how much like magical food preservation I have seen in in fantasy um, books, but that's like the first thing that I think I would do if I was if I was plopped into a fantasy world where I had access to magic, I'd be like, how can I preserve foods that I don't have to eat pickled eggs and loot fisk? <laughs> like... <laughs> 
I'm going to make sure this bread never grows mold. This is magic bread now. (laughs) I want refrigeration and I want it now. But also, like, when do they figure out that, like, hey, like, if you have magic on the scale that it's, like, common that you could, like, basically have everyone have a quote-unquote refrigerator because they have the magic equivalent of it, then when do they figure out, oh, this is a great way to keep food from going going terrible rather than pickling it or loot fisking it or whatever the heck. <laughs> yes, I use loot fisk as a verb. <laughs> so we've discussed we've discussed the disgusting versions of food. I feel like that just also becomes, as everything does, an economic question too, because if you can preserve food, you don't need more food as often. Or I think about things like in the Harry Potter series where conveniently like food is one of the only things you can't just conjure out of nowhere you can't you know create it from nothing and and it's like that's a very easy way to get around having to address that in in your world's (laughs) socioeconomics is i just can't do it just can't just can't no one knows why it's magic you just can't um but that's the thing to think about is is how does food is such a driving economic force and and it's i think slightly less so today than it has been for most of human history that that's definitely a thing to think about if you're going to mess with magic and your food how does that affect the rest of your society's economics? That's very true. And also, like, what foods, what A, like, what foods are eaten by what classes and why that, why that works the way it does. And how many of the things that, like, we right now we're like, oh, my God, that sounds, like, horrid and disgusting to us, <laughs> like Lutefisk, are just like, no, that's the common thing we eat because, like, that's what we ate back when things were scarce and now it's become the cultural tradition just eat that and how many how how many things like that can you put into your culture because that's what they ate when things were scarce but now that things are no longer scarce it's still the common thing they eat i was also thinking some who was it who was i was reading something on twitter that i want to say was elliot de Bodard who was writing this but it could have been somebody else that a lot of the things that we in western culture think of as like traditional Chinese or Vietnamese food is like really like their fancy holiday festival feast dishes that like in no way are they eating on a day to day basis in in those cultures. But they're the standards on most of the menus we see. But that's not the standout of what they eat on a day to day basis and the difference between what's a day to day food and a feast food, which we kind of touched on a little bit in the the past. Yeah. But I think that's interesting too. How many of our feast foods or 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 celebration foods aren't even necessarily the things that we like the most, or that are like the things that? But it's those traditions. Like, how many people don't even like turkey, but they have it every Thanksgiving? Like, I actually like turkey, but I, I every Thanksgiving someone's like, God, I don't even like this. We should just have ham, but <laughs> you can't just have ham because it's Thanksgiving <laughs> and you have to have turkey. And just there, I think, and my remember my Nana on New Year's Day always had to have creamed herring. It was this thing that like we had to have creamed herring on New Year's Day. And like, I think she and one uncle were the only ones who liked it. And there would be this dish of creamed herring just sitting on the sideboard at the buffet because we had to have it. Because Nana wanted it. Because it was, it was Black New Eyed Year's Eve. Day and that's what you have to do. And uh, yep. there can be a generational factor in that as well. I mean, I... Somewhere in this house, I have the cookbook for some fancy hotel in like New York City in like at the like the turn of the century. And half of the things on there are things you would 
never want to eat. <laughs> but it was like part of just the standard, like this is this is what we, you know, we cook as part of our standard things here in in this hotel. And generationally we've moved on from that, be it because of refrigeration, because of a change in scarcity, just or whatever. We don't eat half those things anymore. I mean, who really like liver and onions used to be a staple in so many diners and you never see that anymore because it's just gone out of fashion for so many, for so many people, but it used to be a staple. I guess I found the jackpot. I was going through a box of my grandmother's, all of her recipes (laughs) and she had the um, United Methodist church that she went to their salad luncheon cookbook from like 1968 and it's all gelatin based. Like every salad in here <laughs> involves jello in one way or another. Most of them are not fruit. It's like shredded carrot and orange jello, or um, there's some godforsaken thing that involves like a can of um, cream of mushroom soup and a can of. Um, some other I think a can of chicken and a can of noodles which I didn't even know you could get canned noodles but like just these these concoctions that were and these weren't like this wasn't this wasn't what you serve your kids because you ran out of things in the refrigerator to make for dinner like this was the church salad luncheon fundraiser social event you know of of the day food and I okay. I promise I will. I will post some of these recipes to Twitter when we air this episode because they are a damn delight. Of, of we don't eat this anymore. <laughs> so many of those recipe things from like the sixties and seventies just seem like like this like food of the damned. Sort of like who ever thought <laughs> this was a good idea? Like I honestly think throughout the seventies there was this like unspoken game of chicken through amongst various like society housewives of like who could make the most horrible food that no one would like call them on. And it just got worse and worse. Cause like everyone's like, okay, I'm going to mix mayonnaise and, <laughs> and peas and jello, mayonnaise and jello, mayonnaise and jello and peas and a canned ham. And, oh God. Oh God. No. And one of them had Velveeta too. It was mayonnaise and jello and Velveeta. I swear. <laughs> how much of that was just like because like of advents in food sciences in the 50s and 60s things like jello and mayonnaise and and hot dogs and Velveeta became available and it was just the food equivalent of the line from Jurassic Park of just because you could do a thing didn't mean that you should <laughs> you should well because I mean novelty is a driving factor yeah. of food and you know this this is a, a horror show example but i mean there are other times when novelty produces some pretty decent food like i was looking at um like black pepper was really not a thing that we used in cooking in the western world that much um until it became more available and i want to say it was like early 19th century it became more available and it was still not super cheap but the availability went up and you ended up with um pepper pot which was basically like slop in a pot, but like heavily flavored with pepper as like a really common like street food, but really driven by the novelty of now we've got 
like pepper and this is a fun flavor this is the flavor du jour let's let's play with it it probably also Plus was a thing throw enough of that in there <laughs> yeah yeah and you can't taste how bad this crap is what else is in there so. <laughs> i was gonna say like chili basically was invented as trail food for guys who are like running cattle because if you put enough chili powder in something you don't taste that the meat's gone bad <laughs> Like, that's pretty much its origin. And probably the pepper pot had the same sort of origin of like, <laughs> we throw enough pepper in here. You don't know what's going on with this meat or 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 what part of the meat it was or, or anything or, like or that. These, or these vegetables that don't taste good together. Yeah. there. I remember reading somewhere, somebody like their little bon mot was like, if you can, if you learn to like Garlic salt and Tabasco sauce, you can eat anything. <laughs> valid. Not wrong. That's valid. <laughs> so I wonder, we're kind of coming up on our hour here. Um, and I wonder if we might want to have like a fantasy potluck where we each bring a dish. And I don't know if we want to use our fantasy world that we're building or if we want to use our, our own books, but whatever you guys would like to do to have a fantasy potluck where we each bring a dish let's let's mix it up and and do our own books this time around i like this idea yeah Cass, would you like to start because i am that extra i am bringing you some wonderful tiny delicate honeyed dormice oh thank you Cass. How did you... This is a serious <laughs> delicacy in ancient Rome. And can you can you tell me how you prepared like these cats? <laughs> I, you know, you take a mouse and you dip it in some honey, I think. I'm honestly not really sure. I just noted that it's a thing. Um, <laughs> I actually, I probably have a friend, Crystal King, who could probably tell me because she wrote a whole book about, like, an actual, like, ancient Roman cook. Like, it was a historical novel about this actual guy who wrote, like, the first cookbook. And he probably knows. I imagine it's similar to, like... You know, the way you, like, you roast any tiny, tiny bird, like a quail or something, you probably, like, take it apart and, like, mm -hmm. honey the individual pieces. They would dip almost anything in honey. That Your choices for condiments were sort of, like, honey, if you wanted sweet stuff, or garum, which was a fish sauce, rotted fish sauce <laughs> for savory. <laughs> so I went with the honey rather than the rotted you know, fish sauce because yeah, I like you guys. I'll take the honey, Dormice. Thank yeah. you very much. <laughs> <laughs> though i'm reminded of like what's the i forget what it's called i it's like the orlan or something like that but I forget, it's basically like this songbird that you eat whole that like it's like roasted and it's supposed to be this incredible delicacy but it's also the process of eating it because it is just literally this whole bird bones and all is like so garish and like you, you i mean you look like a monster eating it so the tradition <laughs> The tradition with this dish is you actually like put like a a veil over your head and over the plate <laughs> so that nobody watches you while you eat it because there's like no way to eat it without just looking like this, a monster. <laughs> this is how I feel people should eat like lobster and crab because lots of people this eat lobster accurate. and crab the worst things in the world. I was traumatized when I was a child watching my mother just like rip the head <laughs> off a lobster to eat it. And it was like this. I can't. I'm out. I'm tapping out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've got honey dormouse, uh, veil eating optional. Marshall, what are you bringing us? 
What am I bringing us? Um, from Meridane. From Meridane. So, um, Druth culture, lamb is the big protein source in Meridane. So, depending on which side of the city you're on, it's prepared in different ways. I'm going to go with the one of the dishes that you would get if you went to the, the brasserie that's called the Nimble Rabbit in Meridane, which you can get um, basically, basically just grilled lamb chops with potatoes that are cooked in duck fat and slathered with uh, mustard cooked onions. And that's, there you go. It's that's, that's one of their, that's one of the, the, the prime things you can get if you're living on the rich side of Meridane and going out for a meal. That's not like super fancy, but like a good, like you've got money to spare kind of meal that that's, that's, Filled with meat and potatoes, because that. What else do you need besides that? <laughs> honey dormice, apparently. That's honey how I eat that. <laughs> I'm gonna find out about the honey dormice, and I'm gonna put it in in the Discord <laughs> when this episode airs. Yes, I'm gonna figure that out. Do. We should probably bring up crabs, just because our, our fans in the Discord are really really into crabs. <laughs> if you've been following what's going yes, on, they they've are. been talking a lot about crabs lately. <laughs> Especially how I, now, the word carcinogen apparently doesn't just mean something that causes cancer, but something that makes a crab. <laughs> it's a carcinogen. <laughs> like, that's the origin of the word. I love it. And it makes a crab. I, I unfortunately, I, huh. I don't think I have any crabs to bring to our buffet today. <laughs> but what do you have, Rowena? <laughs> you know, I think I'll bring, this is something out of um, book three, which shameless plug is coming out in May. Um, but Unless the world ends. Um, <laughs> something to read while you're stuck inside. The the main character of, of the, the books is is Pelion, which is an immigrant culture in the the primary culture, but her her mom really tried to um, assimilate for the most part and didn't cook a whole lot of Pelian food. And as as she discovers in the last book, actually her mom was also a really terrible cook because she has a Pelian friend who makes traditional Pelian food for a, a party that she is having. And it turns out it's actually pretty good. And she makes um, something that she calls gami, which is basically like a pesto. It's like herbs and nuts and cheese and oil like blended together and you eat it on flatbread. That sounds delightful. So we're, we'll have an herb gami on flatbread. So you can you can nosh on that alongside your, your dormice and then we'll have Marshall's um, lamb chops as a main <laughs> course, I guess. That sounds excellent. The, sounds good. Sounds good. Th- that's a whole area we didn't get into of like the idea, the, the difference between traditional foods and skill as a cook, because those are two completely <laughs> different accesses in terms of like, in terms of cuisine. I remember we went to a Mexican restaurant here in town once where the food was very traditional. It was as if your Mexican grandmother made it. Presuming your Mexican grandmother was a terrible cook. <laughs> it was like, oh, it was, it was, it was not good. But yet, there you go. <laughs> Any final thoughts of, of food and world building? Whatever you do, make it delicious. Make it so that the people reading your book yes. are like, I want to eat that. 
Or, or alternately, I yeah. really don't. Well, I really, really <laughs> don't want to eat that. One of those well, two. Well, and I think, you know, I, I feel like the kind of the lesson is, like, no shame in including food and world building. Because I feel like we joke about it a lot. Like, fantasy writers put too much food in their, in their books or, you know, LOL at Tolkien and descriptions galore of food. <laughs> but I, it has an important part in world building. And it can reveal a lot about, you know, what you're doing, especially if you're intentional about it. And you're not just throwing a giant feast onto you know a big table to kind of like just roll with a a, you know medieval fantasy world kind of thing but think okay what would people actually have how would they eat it when would they eat it why would they eat it and and do that intentionally and it can have a really rich um addition to whatever you're writing i think it can also be a good way to to sneak the world building in to scenes that aren't otherwise you know like set pieces if you have a lot of dialogue and someone is eating something, it can be almost stage business. You know, it can be yeah. this dish of nuts she's eating from and, and mm-hmm. gestures with one of them or, you know, he pauses to take a bite of his whatever. It's a way to sort of slip that in to break up the dialogue while also telling the reader what's going on in the world, how it's working. Or you can do the great thing that's become something of a trope and have someone eat an apple to show he's a jackass. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you've seen people, to, you've seen them do that. It's like, I'm going to eat an apple. Softly, just show you that I'm a jackass. <laughs> well, you know, and as Marcel mentioned earlier, you you don't have to go out of your way to find opportunities to include food because everyone has to eat at some point. Yes. You know, and Cassie yep. said you don't have to have a religious ceremony, but gosh, you you do have to at some point have a meal. So it's there and mm-hmm. ready for you. All right, friends. I think yeah. that's all we have. <laughs> all right, so friends, go off, build things, and eat them. <laughs> nom 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 nom. nom. <laughs> Hey you! Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. I know it's a little weird hearing me do this, but this is what you get this week. Things are a little weird around here. Our next episode goes up on April 29th, and we'll be talking about rituals and ceremonies with Tochiana Bucci, and I'm very excited for that one. We really hope you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review on iTunes. If you've got questions or just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Tumblr as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. We also have a Discord chat room linked on the About the Show page of our website if you want to come to chat with us and other fans of the podcast. Here's your cool fact of the day. Some of the earliest recipes of human cuisine were flour and bread and beer. It is unknown whether beer led to the discovery of bread or if bread led to the discovery of beer, but both were some of the first foods made in ancient Egypt.